Lord, we thank you for giving us your word and thank you for giving us your spirit and for the interplay of those two things, allowing your spirit to take your word and bring it to life, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, and then to grow from being planted in our hearts to producing fruit and change, transformation, repentance in our lives that benefits other people and bring honors to you. So Lord, as we try to put these uh, pillars together tonight, we ask that if there are things that are a little disjointed and aren't connecting in someone's mind, uh, would you bring cohesion tonight? Uh, Or maybe we follow up with conversations afterward. But Lord, may we together seek clarity tonight, not for the purpose of knowing things and being able to process information or learning new vocabulary or new models, but so we can live out uh, the reality of the gospel in our lives and we can live a life that's contagious and spreading to other people that they can want to experience what we're experiencing in Jesus. So give us wisdom and may we have a good time tonight as we access, think about, and then try to apply what your word says. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're going to blow through some slides pretty quickly. I've got a bunch of slides just by way of review. Uh, So I went back through all the slide decks. Oh, and by the way, whoever's listening upstairs, the slide deck from last week, I understand, was not posted. So if somebody listening knows how to do that, they would do that. That'd be great. I don't know how to do that. So uh, somebody can do that. So I went through the nine slide decks, kind of cherry-picked a few slides just so I could say something by way of summary and review Um, Some slides I'm going to blow through really quickly because it may seem like it's getting redundant. Um, I just wanted to give you some context. We'll stop at a couple of places and take a little bit of time, talk about it, but we'll try to keep moving so we can get to your questions, all right? So I started for the first couple weeks, and I was talking about something that really has been impactful for me, and that is living with inputs, insights, and integration. And my goal, my prayer has been for you guys that you would get some inputs these 10 weeks, maybe some things you normally don't think about, maybe thinking about the Bible in a slightly different way, putting some concepts together in your mind that normally you haven't put together before. But more than inputs, I wanted you to experience some insights. Say, I never thought about that before. Yeah, now that's making sense, or now I'm really confused. Kind of get an insight or so. But more than getting insights from the inputs, The goal is that we would take some of those insights, those things that, you know, the spirit is maybe moving to the front burner in our lives, and to ask ourselves, what needs to be integrated into my life, not just as a one or two time application, but what needs to get integrated into my life as a habit, something I practice, if not daily, something that I practice on a regular basis. So maybe that would be reading the Bible differently, thinking about world, fruit, heart, when you're reading passages, looking at a character. Or maybe it's thinking about, boy, do I get so committed to convictions and preferences and I'm not too committed or don't think too much about absolutes? Whatever those insights may be, which ones are moving to integration and how is that working in your life? Um, I'm continuing to keep kind of a list for me and I kind of think it'd be a good habit for you. Out of the thousands and thousands of inputs that come into your life, What insights, take some time to think, what insights are generated, and then what do you need to integrate, apply to your life on a regular basis? Well, our four pillars that we've played with for 10 weeks now are, we read the Bible as a big story, if you like fancy words, we read the Bible as a meta-narrative, meta is just a Greek prefix, 
You talk about the metaverse now, right? Um, the, me, um, the word meta just means beyond. So we're talking about a narrative beyond all the narratives, a giant narrative, a big story that actually subsumes all the small stories. It may correct, disqualify some, but all of the little stories that are true are summed up in the big story. So that was our first pillar. And that to some people and to some practicing teachers, that's a pretty radical concept because we've been trained in a lot of our Bible study materials, don't read the Bible as a big story. They train us to read the Bible as a collection of verses. So we read these two verses over here in Peter, then we run over to James, then we go back in 1 Kings. And that's not how the Bible was written. We want to read the Bible as a biblical theology rather than a systematic theology. If that's confusing you, forget it. Uh, the, the second point is that the Bible is Jesus' story. Now, you've got to keep these in mind, and at the end, we're going to show you how they fit together. So the big story is Jesus' story. So the point and the purpose of the biblical story is Jesus. Everything is moving to him, and everything flows from him. So you can't subtract Jesus from the story and still have a cohesive story. Jesus is the point and the purpose. You'll see how that's important in a few minutes if you haven't figured it out yet. Thirdly, we need to prioritize theology. And that is, you've heard me say a couple times now, all that the Bible says is true, but all that the Bible says is not equally important. And so how do we prioritize what the scripture says and put the most relevant, the most important things kind of as the priority and those secondary tertiary things can kind of fall by the wayside a little bit. Let's fly the Jesus flag at the top of the flagpole and we're gonna have an example of how to do that tonight. And then lastly, that we've been playing, for the, playing with this one, a little more complicated than the others, a gospel transformation is internal. It's heart initiated. Fruit comes after heart transformation. So just like the roots of a tree are where the real action happens that then produce the fruit, so heart change, biblical repentance and transformation, happens in the heart that then brings about external um, change at the fruit level. But we started not with a pillar, but by looking at a definition. And remember how we described mission or ministry? We said mission and ministry are uh, being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. And we said a few times, the starting point for people in this world is not the same. So you can think demographically, geographically, historically, whatever you want. Not everybody starts at the same starting point, which means we need to learn the difference and live the difference between wineskins and wine, between bridges of influence and absolutes of ministry. So those metaphors that Jesus, or the metaphor Jesus uses, the new wine of the gospel is moving people to where God wants them to be. The bridges are the wineskins. And you can kind of see Jesus critiquing some of the religious leaders in his day. And there are lots of people in our day that need to be critiqued the same way. Uh, I'll paraphrase. Sometimes we get so consumed and we love our wineskins that we lose sight of new wine. So do you love wineskins or do you love new wine? Wineskins can come and go. They're the bridges, the ministry vehicles. The new wine of the gospel is that process that God brings about change in our lives through the Spirit. All right, so that was kind of our definition. We described it like this, being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. And we said then, 
We have to be students. We have to be knowledgeable in at least three things. Where God wants people to be, kind of the target. Where people are. And we've got to be humble enough and conversant enough that we can move to where they are to live out that Galatians 4, uh, Galatians 4 understanding of ministry. I became like you so you can become like me. If you don't have absolutes, convictions, preference, or prioritize theology, you can't move to where people are. There are too many prohibitions. You can't do that. You can't associate. Can't. But if you have a prioritized theology, you can have different convictions, right? You can live out your convictions, but give up some of your preferences to move where people are to then begin to help influence them to move to where God wants them to be. The reason we started with that definition and then later we talked about a prioritized theology is this. The only way we can do ministry like this is if you have a prioritized theology like that. If everything is an absolute, you can't move to where people are. If everything is an absolute, Paul could not say, to the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the weak, I became weak. To those that are strong. He couldn't have said that unless he had a prioritized theology. He wouldn't have been able to eat with Gentiles. He wouldn't have been able to associate with this group or that group. And so you need a prioritized theology if you're going to live out that definition of ministry. So they go together. So if you buy this definition, you need a prioritized theology. That doesn't mean you're going to put everything in the same circle somebody else is, but it does mean you're going to understand the difference between absolutes, something about convictions, giving people liberty on those, and being willing to sacrifice your, prefer- sacrifice your pres- preferences for the benefit of others. And then we uh, looked at the four pillars in detail. And the first one we said story. I remember my, uh, one of my favorite quotes that J- Stephen James says, When Christianity becomes something other than entering into and living out the story of God, it becomes something other than Christianity. God's story isn't over. It's still being told today. Each one of us has the potential to become both a chapter of history and a chapter of his story. The gospel's a story, right? Christianity is a story. It's not a collection of truths. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a doctrinal statement. It's a story. Now, you've got to believe certain things to kind of live in the story and live out the story, but it's primarily a big narrative that we then read ourselves into. The picture we used is that the Bible's not a giant bag of marbles that you reach in and pull out the ones you want to play with and put the others back or throw them away. Um, The Bible is like a giant mountain, and it's not a staircase where you have different, you know, God deals with different people differently. There may be little differences, but the main thrust is the same. The Bible's not a smooth ski slope where you can stand on it at any point and see the summit, summit without you know, any kind of interference. No, the Bible's more like a mountain, which means there are cul-de-sacs. There are false summits. There are dead ends. It's often confusing. You can get cloudy and you lose sight of the top. It's confusing sometimes to read the Bible, right? And there are some passages you feel like you're not able to see how you're supposed to get out of this thing. Um, so the Bible's complex. It's complicated. It's a big story, and understanding the story and living it out, God's given us this giant mountain that we can invest our lives in trying to summit, and every once in a while you get a picture of the pinnacle, right, of the summit, and it's clear. And other weeks you can't kind of figure it out. You're wondering, you're in this other passage and it's not making sense. Hang in there, keep going. One day uh, he'll explain all the details to us. That's probably not here, by the way. 
So we said, we read the Bible as this big mountain story, Jesus story. We don't read the Bible as a book of rules. We don't read the Bible as a collection of heroes. We read the Bible as the adventure of one hero. And that hero accomplished all that we were required to accomplish. So we failed. We can't do it. And you have a lot of failures in your record. You can't go back and eliminate the failures. Jesus has a perfect track record. And that's why when we talk about the imputation, right? Imputation, kind of like you, something's imputed to your bank account. Um, the imputation of Christ's work to us, he imputes his righteousness to us. So we get his record and he gets our record. We talk about a deal, right? <laughs> he gets all of our failures and he pays the price for that. Even though he was completely innocent, we get his track record of righteousness. That's why, um, I hope you never get over the fact that um, when John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus, um, all three members of the Trinity come into play there, right? So the Father booms from heaven, the Spirit descends as a dove, Jesus is uh, getting baptized, and the Father says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And if his record has become yours, and your record has become his, that's exactly what he says to you. You are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. Even though we have the record we've got. That's the gospel, both sides of that imputation piece. We don't read the Bible as a collection of bits, because when we do, we're going to wind up, wind up plugging them in to the wrong story. And one of the questions related to... Um, some, I'll try to get, it was a long question, so I'll kind of paraphrase and speak to it here because this uh, speaks to that. Uh, this person said, I've never quite heard before that when we read the Bible, we're reading someone else's mail. Does that mean the promises don't apply to us? Now, that, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. I was not saying that at all. What I was saying is that when you read the Bible, you're reading it, that particular passage, that section that was written to a group of people in a different culture. It was written in different categories, written in different vocabulary. And yes, some of the promises may have been specifically related and connected to them. But there are lots of promises in the Bible that supersede the context. But we always need to understand, whenever you're reading the Bible, you need to do these two things. What it meant to that audience and what it means to us. And so there certainly are. The promises of the Bible are for us. You need to understand what it meant and what it means. It may mean something a little different than what it meant. The principle, the point will be the same. But remember, with all the cultural trappings, we've got to do our homework to kind of strip some of that away and be able to say, what did it mean back? It would, it would be like reading, I'm not sure if you remember, like in high school, you're reading a Shakespearean play. I mean, I mean, I didn't know what the heck he was talking about most of the time. I don't speak like that. I'm not a poetry guy. But the gist of it can be communicated. Um, suppose you're, I may, I may have said this a few weeks ago. Suppose you're um, cleaning out your great-grandparents' um, attic one day, and you pick up an old chest, and there are letters in there that your great-grandfather wrote to your great-grandmother when he was overseas in the war. My guess is you'd be able to understand a lot of stuff in that letter. 
Love is still the same. Marriage is still the same. Feelings are still the same. Fears are still the same. But a lot of the context and a lot of the details are going to be radically different. Remember, we watched the um, Honeymooners clip. Marriage is still the same. Living is still the same. But 38 cents as your electric bill? Having an ice box with literal box of ice in it? That's different. So when I said we're reading somebody else's mail, I didn't mean the Bible doesn't apply to us. I meant we've got to understand what it meant and then understand what it means, and there's going to be a little bit of exchange that has to happen. When you go from one context to another, you have to exchange your currency and get the new currency. Just like when you go to another country, if they use different um, currency, you've tra- you trade it in at the airport or before you go, and you get new currency. It's never a one-to-one exchange, right? And so you're, you've got to be able to know what the exchange rate is and make the exchange. That's kind of what I meant. So the Bible does promise blessing, protection, provision, all of that stuff. Ultimately, we get all of that in heaven, but God has orchestrated life that we get to taste that now. You know, a really good example of that, and for me, and I'm, I have crazy examples sometimes, is um, when we celebrate communion. <laughs> You've probably heard me say before, when you celebrate communion, we talk about this meal. And here's the reality. If you were hungry before you took communion, you're going to be hungry after you take communion, right? If you get a little piece of cracker and a shot glass full of grape juice, you're still going to be hungry. What's the point? It's kind of like um, we consume at communion the crumbs from the banquet table as the banquet's being prepared. We're moving there. Well, as we go through life, God gives us little crumbs every now and then, right? Just kind of smile and say, yeah, thanks for that, right? Um, But they're just crumbs. We can't even imagine what the ultimate reality and banquet are going to be like. So that was what I was, God does want to bless us, provide for us, etc. But God's our father, and at times he withholds things that, just like with your kids, you withhold some things that they really think they need. Well, he withholds some things we think we need that we really don't need. He's growing us up, maturing us, and making us strong too. So here's our story that we talk about, right? Our six acts, God creates, God is rejected, God promises, God appears, God sends, God restores. They're the acts that we talk about. The climactic act, right? The point and the purpose would be act four. Jesus appears, everything flows to it and from it. Uh, Here's how we talked about that Jesus-centric narrative. When we read the Bible, if you're reading Old Testament, right? Text before Jesus, We do not do the Jesus jump, so you don't go from David to you, from Daniel, Abraham to you, from Sarah to you. You read it along the redemptive history storyline. How does something in that, how does this event, this text, this principle, how does that start to vibrate and reverberate a theme or so that finds its ultimate climax in Christ, and from Jesus, that reverberation then affects us. So we don't do this in application. We do this in application because we apply the gospel of Jesus. We don't apply the rules and the hero principles from Abraham. See how that works? In the New Testament, we don't really go text to reader either because the New Testament text actually always takes us back to Jesus, the point and the purpose. The New Testament is basically Christological, right? It's a study of Jesus. 
And so all the New Testament writers tell us about Jesus, and then they apply what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. So that's how we read the Bible. Now, that becomes really important when we're talking about change and those seven windows. Because remember, if you're going to do the Jesus jump, if you're going to do that, that's an awful lot like reading the Bible as a book of rules, reading the Bible as a book of examples. That's a whole lot like going two to six. That's a lot like living out the characteristics of this other person. So we don't read the Bible two to six. We read the Bible two, three, four, five, six. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we talk about the windows. All right, so the last one, we talk about transformation. And uh, I took two weeks to kind of get us thinking about this depth model uh, because the big step in understanding how God made us is not really looking at all seven. The big difference is looking at these three to realize that we live in an environment, in a context, but that context does not actually cause all of the actions, thoughts, and emotions that we have. Those, those actions, thoughts, emotions are driven by what's in our hearts. So we are driven by what, we are motivated by what's under the, the surface, not what's coming from the context. We uh, added the other windows, which really only adds one, right? It looks more complicated. And here's what we've said. If we're going to read the Bible as a book of rules, you're going two to six, right? Live like David. David did this, you do that. Solomon did this, don't do that. Jonah did this, don't do that. Esther, all your studies, right? Esther did this, stop that, right? They've, well, if, you're, if the Bible's a book of rules or a book of following the hero, we don't need three, four, five. We'll just do this. B.F. Skinner may like that, but God wasn't like that, right? Um, there's a whole depth model, a whole bunch of stuff under the water line or under the soil line that's generating that stuff. Now, let me uh, say at this point, Here's why, or one way, that the pillars hang together. This process that we talked about is idolatry, right? Clinging to the wrong stuff in our roots. And just like a, we talked on Sunday, just like a vine has a tendency to attach to the wrong stuff, so roots have a tendency to attach to the wrong stuff. Your water line, soil pipes, right? Roots have a tendency to attach to the wrong stuff too. They wind up cracking up your sidewalk, ruining your driveway. Roots have a tendency to do what vines do, attach, go, grow in the wrong direction and attach to the wrong stuff. Therefore, what roots actually do in our model, roots take good things from our context, good things from your environment, right? Good things up here. And our hearts promote those good things to God things or idols in our hearts. So somebody wanted a question. I'm thinking of questions as we go. One of the questions was, can somebody make church an idol? You bet. I mean, we're ingenious. We, we can take wonderful gifts and make it an idol, right? And so I'll just run through a list of good, some good things people make an idol. You can make church or your church an idol. You can make your discipleship program an idol. You can make your recovery system. You can make journaling. You can make your marriage or your spouse an idol. You can make your family. You know, one of the things that Americans have had a tendency to do 
take good relationships, right? God wants us to have good marriages. God wants us to have families that are solidly rooted on him, etc. But we can take those good things and make them the God thing. None of those things should be primary in our lives. You know, I, I don't like the whole, um, you ever see this thing? Uh, well, you know, I've got three big priorities in my life, right? God's number one, you know, marriage number two, works number three. That never works. That never works. You don't have to go to that seminar. That doesn't work. How does it work? Here's how it works. We have one priority. Jesus is our priority. Now, in having Jesus as your priority, he calls you to live as a faithful, loving, loyal spouse. That's still your priority to Jesus. It's not a secondary. It's the same one. He calls you to be a good steward in your workplace, honest day's work for an honest day's pay. That's not a separate, that's part of that priority. And so we have one priority that has different facets to it, um, but we can take any good thing and make it a God thing. It becomes an idol, and that idol will produce a whole bunch of bad fruit. So an idol in three produces junk fruit in two. See how that works? So how does the process work then? If repentance is not two to six, if it's two, three, four, five, six, how does it work? Well, we looked at a few examples last week. I'm just going to look at one with you tonight and kind of put it in perspective. I don't think we did this last week. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 19. And let's talk. One of you mentioned, I don't know if you did in your papers, it mentioned Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a, is a really good one. And here's why Zacchaeus is a good one. We know from lots of examples, and we know from putting the Bible together, you know, theologically, that this is the structure, or you don't have to use my pictures, but this is the structure. What's unseen is producing what's seen, right? We know that that's true. That's all over the Bible. Sometimes all of the details of how somebody goes two, three, four, five, six is not going to be detailed. But we know it's happening if there's real change, if there's real repentance, even though it may not be right on the page. Zacchaeus is a good one to show that, and I'll kind of show how I think it works. So I'll read uh, first, oh, 10 verses or so of Luke 19, and we'll look at Zacchaeus, right? Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, that passage doesn't say, um, what must I do? And Jesus, well, you need to receive me into your heart as your Savior. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus does say, today salvation's come to your house. But we never read Zacchaeus prayed a prayer. Uh, we never read, you know, he raised his hand. We don't read any of that. So we look at we get nervous, right? We say, oh, my goodness, none of that stuff happened. Okay. Well, let's talk about our picture. What's happening in Zacchaeus's world? T tell me a little bit about Zacchaeus. Just yell it out. What, what, do you know, what do we know about Zacchaeus? 
tax collector. And there's a whole lot of baggage that goes with that, right? Tax collectors were shunned, particularly if they're Jewish, right? They were shunned. You know what that means to be a tax collector? Zacchaeus could not be a member of a synagogue. Jewish guy can't go to church. He was probably thrown out and ostracized from his family. He has no familial connections. He has no church or religious connections. Um, he probably had no friends. Any self-respecting you know, Jew that wants to kind of live a moral, ethical life can't associate with Zacchaeus. Never gets invited to a birthday party. Never gets invited to a wedding. Never goes to a reception, anniversary. Nobody cares about him. Ever comes to visit him. Nothing. He's completely separated. So he is outside the cultural connection. He's disconnected from culture, community, family, church. What else do we know about him besides tax collector? He's short. We know he's short, right? You can't see what's going on. Anything else we know? He's a big one. We're Americans. We... He's wealthy. He's a rich guy, right? Um, why was he wealthy? Because he's a tax collector, right? And so those things kind of are coalescing, right? So He's a wealthy guy. He's a tax collector, a chief tax collector, which meant he had lots of tax collectors reporting to him. And you know, this was kind of like tax collecting back then, kind of like you know, the first Amway system. And so and the more direct you had down here, the money's kind of flowing up to you. The key is kind of high. In the, I, he's got lots of money flowing. He's incredibly wealthy. He's disconnected. All that stuff happening in his world. What fr- Before Jesus comes, what fruit? I, can you hypothesize, think about, what fruit may he be exhibiting? Selfishness? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah he's about himself. Yeah. yeah he's, do you think he's really concerned that he can't go to church? Do you, not, do you think he cares that nobody wants to sit near him at the ball game? Or? Let, let me ask a question. That somebody mentioned his fact that he, the fact that he was short. Um, why couldn't Zacchaeus see Jesus when the parade was coming? Why? Because he was short. Uh, technically, no. You ever go to a parade? A Disney parade, when, before COVID, when they used to have parades. <laughs> you go to a Disney parade, the little kids are real short, but they can see the parade. How can the little kids see the parade at Disney World? Why, why do they get to see the parade? Yeah, our parents either lift them up or the grown-ups say, oh, come on up here and sit on the curb. Right? You can stand in front of me, sit in front of me. Nobody's letting Zacchaeus stand in front of them. He's ostracized. He climbs a tree because he's short and because he's hated. So what's in his world? Yeah, he's disconnected. He's, not, he's living his own life. He's living a separate life. What, just guess. We don't know. What do you think would be a a good hypothesis about what he may be living for, loving, prioritizing, valuing. What? Money. Sure seems like it, doesn't it? Zacchaeus made a strategic cost-benefit analysis. And here's what he said. I will trade religious connection, family connection, cultural connection, and I'm willing to be hated if I'm wealthy. So he is certainly loving a lot of that stuff here, right? And he's paying the price up here, and he's happy with that, right? It's working. Um, Jesus shows up, 
And Jesus is like a heat-seeking missile to people that are far from him. You ever notice that? Like all the religion, he walks right through the religious people. Right? He walks right over to his, hey, buddy, I'm coming to your house. And what does it say Zacchaeus? What's the language? Zacchaeus, what did he do? He welcomed him gladly. That doesn't mean what it means to you and me. Here's the culture, all right? It's not our mail. That doesn't mean Zacchaeus welcomed Jesus for a cup of coffee. To welcome someone into their home and to share a meal with them is to welcome them into the center of their life. You don't just let anybody eat at your table. You don't just let anybody come into your life. So that is the point where we're saying, yeah, something's going on. It isn't just they had a casual acquaintance and Jesus stopped for an hour and had cookies. And no, this is a welcoming, a coming to your senses deal. This is clearly moving three and four here, right? This is moving three to four. Now, you could look at it two to six and say, yeah, well, Zacchaeus just says, you know, I'm going to give my stuff away. I'm going to return this. I'll do more and I'm not going to cheat anybody anymore. It sounds like two to six. It's not two to six. Let me show you. Turn back a few chapters to Luke chapter three. And here's something you have to remember. I know it's hard. The Bible was not written to be read the way we read it. Like when Luke was writing the gospel, I don't think he could have imagined that people would gather and spend a year and a half working through his gospel, reading a paragraph and a half a week. He expected people were going to sit down and read the book. Now, if you read something in Luke 3, but keep Zacchaeus in mind. Now, remember, they would have read it straight through. Luke's writing this, you know, they're reading it straight through. Listen to some of the weird stuff that we find in Luke 3. And keep Zacchaeus, Luke 19, and help me in mind. Look at this, verse 7, chapter 3. John said to the crowds that are coming to be baptized, John the Baptist, coming to be baptized. Here's John, right? Gentle, soothing. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Look at this. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the tree, tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit, God will cut down and throw into the fire. There's our analogy, right? Fruit, roots, there we go. And uh, John's saying, don't come, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now notice there are two steps there, right? He doesn't say produce fruit, and that's repentance. He says, no, produce fruit that's caused by biblical repentance. Repentance is something underground that's producing fruit. You see that there? Then he begins to elaborate on what that real fruit, fruit in keeping with repentance, looks like. So here's what he said. Now, think of Zacchaeus. What should we do, the crowd said. John answered. Anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. Kind of sounds like you're going to give away half. What does Zacchaeus do? Oh, yeah. Even tax collectors, there he is, right? He's right here. Now, this is there all these chapters before. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Teachers, what, what must we do? Remember, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't produce fruit 
And that's repentance. No, you're going to repent. And that repentance, that true repentance is going to produce this fruit. Don't collect more than you're required to. You know what Luke does in chapter 19? He lifts up Zacchaeus as an example of a tax collector producing fruit in keeping with repentance. He says to, John the Baptist says to the religious leaders, you guys are producing bad fruit or you're trying to produce, you know, you're trying to go two to six. You're, you know, you're tying good fruit onto your life, but it's not fruit in keeping with repentance. Oh, but a few chapters later, I'm going to give you an example of a guy that all of you think should be condemned. He's immoral, he's unethical, but he's producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Zacchaeus went two, three, four, five, six. That fruit move was not two to six. That repentance happened. He welcomes Jesus gladly. And the fruit of that transaction is now what's happening in six. There's an old sermon. I forget the exact title, but it goes, uh, I'll paraphrase. The only thing that can dislodge a beautiful object from someone's heart. The only thing that can dislodge a beautiful object from someone's heart is a more beautiful object. Not rules, not examples, not regulations, not to-do lists. You want to know something? Wealth is a beautiful object. You know, it says money won't buy happiness. I'll tell you what, it'll go a long way. Um, it's, it's a beautiful object. Marriage is a beautiful object. Church is a beautiful object, right? You think sex is a beautiful object. All these times, the only thing that will dislodge a beautiful object from the clutches of your heart, when your heart, my heart, gets entangled around the wrong stuff, and we're not stupid. We entangle our hearts and the roots of our hearts around good, wonderful gifts, but once we get them in, get in our heart's clutches, they produce bad fruit because the gifts were never intended to be gods. They're intended to be gifts. Jesus is the most beautiful object. So the only way you're going to dislodge an idol, a beautiful gift from your clutches of your heart, is to show Jesus to your heart. That's why we read the Bible with Jesus as the point and the purpose. We don't read the Bible as a book of rules because that's two to six. All that's doing is self-help. That's not getting at the root of the issues. We read the Bible as always moving to and from Jesus because our hearts are idle factories producing this stuff, clutching this stuff, holding on to this stuff that we won't let go. And they're beautiful objects. You can't scold your heart to give up a beautiful object. You know, you, you can't be mean and call your heart names and... No, the only thing that'll dislodge a beautiful heart is a more, an idol from your heart is a more beautiful object. Show your heart Jesus. Isn't that what Isaiah said? Isn't that what Jeremiah said? Compare them to me. Bring on the competition. Look at who I am and what I've done and look at the idol that you're clinging to. This is an IQ test. Do the same, don't even do the spiritual thing. Do the same thing. And your heart will let go of its idol, and your heart will clutch Jesus until the next hour. Then your heart will clutch something else, right? And, and that's how the process works. Does that make sense? That's why 
We have to read the Bible as a story. We have to read the Bible as Christ's story because this is the act or something. I don't care if you like my windows. This is how God made us. And if we read the Bible as a collection of bits, if we read the Bible about rules and heroes, we're going to be doing this. One, two, six, seven. And we're going to try to play this game. That repentance will never be lasting. It will never be fulfilling. And your heart will still be littered with idols. And the repentance process will never work. Because your heart is clutching beautiful idols. And your heart's never been shown beautiful Jesus that will cause your heart to drop the idols. Make sense? That's how the pillars are coming together. All right. Let me, uh, let me answer a couple of questions, and then if we have time, we'll talk about women in ministry. That was one of the questions. I answered a few of these as we went. I'll try not to, uh, to get hung up. What do you think of The Chosen? How many of you have seen The Chosen? Okay, I have not. <laughs> but I, I, I can tell you this. I've read a little about it. My daughter watches it. She really likes it. Here, here's what I would say. From what I've read and from what she tells me and what I hear from other people that really know, it's well done. And uh, they're striving, from what I can tell, reading what the producer's doing, and say, they're striving for biblical faithfulness. But the chosen has to fill in a lot of gaps and say a lot more than the scripture says, only because the Bible doesn't give us a blow-by-blow narrative of everything that happened. And so it's got to fill in a whole lot of gaps. And some of the gaps it fills in, you know, in cool ways. And some of the gaps it fills in, eh, um, right? So anyway, like I, the Mary Magdalene episode there, um, the one thing I read was Mary Magdalene pretty closely portrayed as being raped by a Roman soldier. Then she sees the Roman soldier, kind of freaks out. Uh, did that happen? Uh, it's not in the Bible, but I mean, it, I guess it makes for a good story. I don't know if that would have happened or not, but like that whole idea um, if you love, love that, that's, I'm not one that kind of likes Bible movies like that because I can make a better movie in my head of how I think the stuff's going. And when I watch the movie, it always says, yeah, but you need to change. I, I don't want to change some of that, right? So it's kind of an ego thing, I guess. Uh, so anyway, I, I think The Chosen's a good thing. Just make sure you realize a lot of it is kind of not in Scripture. They're trying to be faithful but it's, the, it's a dramatization filling in lots of gaps. That's how I would say it. Uh, and then it says, which coffee do you prefer, Dunkin' or Starbucks? Um, <laughs> that's really not a contest. I did have Dunkin' today, only because I was far away from a Starbucks. I, I, I can deal with the Dunkin' dark. They don't even have dark roast now. I go up to she said, what's it called? Dunkin' Shadow or Dunkin' Midnight or what's it called? It's just some dark name, so I got, it, it was half, it was okay. It's still not Starbucks, but. Do I think God has a sense of humor? I sure do. Um, and I'd probably um, reference uh, a couple of things. And, and again, I'm, the Bible doesn't say, you know, God likes to laugh, even though I, I think he, he's pretty funny. If, if, when you read some of the ironic, funny things he does and what Jesus says, and if Jesus is the perfect image of God, I think Jesus is kind of a fun guy. A man of sorrows acquainted with greed. Yeah, but he had lots of fun too. Remember they kept saying um, that he is uh, a glutton and a drunkard. Well, that means he was always partying. Well, you know, you're, you're not partying if you're always depressed. I mean, Jesus is having a good time, right? I'm guessing he laughed with his disciples. Um, he, also from nature. You ever look at some of the stuff God made? I mean, he had a laugh, right? 
like, like, what's up with an ostrich? Like this giant bird with wings but can't fly. A duck-billed platypus. Like the thing, the parts don't even go together, right? And then the Bible says a lot about God delights. Well, the word delight is more than what we mean by delight. I mean, that means finding joy and rejoicing. God rejoices over us, right? With singing. Ecclesiastes 3 doesn't say about God. There's a time to mourn and a time to laugh. So we're kind of commanded for that. And I, if we're supposed to be living out those characteristics of God, I would say God is a joyful God who delights in things that he made at the end of every day. It's very good, very good. I think he kind of smiled. I think he likes to laugh. Uh, here's another one, a question that you probably heard before. Who did Cain marry? If they were part of the first family, who else did he marry? Well, it's kind of Adam and Eve, right? They have Cain and Abel. Well, he, obviously, he married a sister, right? That's who he married. Um, the prohibitions don't come till later. He, he had to marry somebody related. So, yeah, he married a sister. I don't know how else he would have done it. What's your opinion of Genesis 6-2? Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Genesis. This is a kind of a confounding. Well, we're not going to solve this tonight. But Genesis 6-2 has kind of confounded a whole bunch of people. And, and it's weird, right? The, the, the Bible has a lot of weird stuff in it. And Genesis 6, that, the first few verses, is one of them. So here's what it says. I'll just read it, and then we'll talk about it for a minute. When human beings began to increase in number on the, dirt, on, on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans. They saw that they were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, though days will be 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were heroes of old men of renown. Um. All right, so everything's crystal clear in those verses, <laughs> except who all the main characters were, right? Um, here's what's crystal clear. Whatever they did, God didn't like it. And uh, the flood comes at the end of the chapter. Uh, God's like pretty ticked. This is in the list of stuff that ticks him off. Who were the characters? We're, nah, I'm, I'm not really sure. So here are the different views, right? Are the sons of God, in this context, context, are they angels? Well, then you have this weird deal. Okay, so now you have angels that were told in the Gospels, particularly in Mark. Well, angels neither marry or are given in marriage, so angels aren't having sex. Well, here, not just are angels having sex, they're having sex with women, humans, and they're producing offspring, the Nephilim, these men of renown. That, that, that's one view. Um, another view is that it's all on the human level. Sons of God would be the descendants through Seth, right? Remember, Abel dies. The godly line, right, the good line is picked up by Seth. Cain continues the evil line. So on the more human level, some interpreters say, yeah, got men from the godly line of Seth are marrying daughters from the Cain line that are wicked. And obviously they shouldn't have been doing that. Why would they produce men of renown, the Nephilim? I don't know. Um, th those are kind of the, the two main views. I, we're not going to solve it. I don't know. You, you can have your own preference or conviction. Um, 
I probably lean toward the more human view. Uh, too many esoteric considerations and concerns on my part if you have actual angels. But if you hold that view, that's fine. Lots of really good people hold that view. I can see where the four pillars would be considered absolutes, but are the subpoints of each pillar the marble or step approach, studying, preaching, absolutes, convictions, or preferences? Um, I would say this. Um, I don't think that the pillars are absolutes. The pillars are convictions, right? They are human constructs. They're trying to take a lot of biblical data that's fairly, it's trying, I'm trying to do an honest job with it. I'm not trying to intentionally not overlook or overlook some things so I, 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 it doesn't have to have any problems with it. I would say that they're convictions. Human, human ways of putting things together. But if you're not going to buy these convictions, and that's fine, right? You don't have to. Just make sure you're going to come up with a set of convictions that allows you to take into account the various themes of the Bible and the complexities that they bring. So how are you going to bring together the dynamic of what's unseen producing what's seen? How are you going to deal with all those verses that we looked about, I looked at, I looked at where Jesus says, the Old Testament, the script, that's all they had, the scriptures speak of me. If you read it faithfully, you'd be coming. To, what are you going to? So you don't have to buy these. I think you do have to be faithful to the big themes that we're playing with. But you can certainly be a Christian, you know, and not hold to these. Uh, you can read the Bible as a collection of bits. I just hope you do your contextual work, and the bits are kind of being explained in their context. Um, that's fine. So I would say that their convictions, they're not absolutes. We have, and the reason we're calling this pillars, we have. At Calvary, we've adopted the pillars as kind of foundational to what we do. And so we want this to be the theological, philosophical foundation on which our preaching happens, our teaching happens, our small group, the way we read the Bible. We want these things. We believe they're a faithful way to read the Scripture, not the only one. There's a, that's a faithful way to do it. Not everybody at Calvary Church has to practice them, but we're saying we want our public face and we want there to be consistency and integration with the ministries of Calvary Church to live out these particular pillars. That's why we're calling it pillars, and that's why we're putting it into these are things that we want to be part of our legacy. All right, now I got a bunch of slides here, and uh, the reason I did this is not because I think this is a hobby horse, but because it came as a question. I didn't plant it. Here's the question. Can you explain the biblical view of women in ministry? Sure, I, uh, wow. <laughs> sure, I only need about 30 seconds for that. No. <laughs> um, okay, here, here's what I would say. So I'm going to take a run at it. But here, here's why I'm going to do it. I am not going to talk about women in ministry because that's what one of the pillars is, right? I'm going to talk about women in ministry to try to demonstrate how the pillars actually can kind of work out in practice. Now, we don't have time tonight to get into a lot of the hermeneutical stuff, right? But let me at least explain to you uh, what the issues are. I'm going to try to, um, I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, kind of our view is at Calvary, but I'm going to try to do an honest assessment, right? So I am, I'm going to try to work with the biblical data, not put my thumb on the scale, not let you know exactly what I'm thinking. At the end, I'll tell you kind of what Calvary's position is. But I would say 
women in ministry, and your view, is not an absolute. It is a conviction. There are good, solid, faithful Christians on all sides of the issue. So let's get rid of forever, say, well, you know, those churches that have women elders and women preachers, they're not Christian. The heck, I don't know if they all are, but the heck, many of them are. Um, they're faithful. They're, and they would say, we have women elders, we have women preachers, because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. They're faithfully trying to do it. And there are other faithful Christians that would say, no, you know, as we put the Bible together, we're doing that construct. Um, we, we don't think that that's the conclusion. But let's at least get rid of the superficial JV, you know, non-nuanced positions where we just call each other. There's enough of that in the political world. We don't need that in the church world, right? Um, all right, so here, here are our definitions. The two positions, right, at two extremes. There are lots of positions in between. The two positions are called complementarianism and egalitarianism. You didn't notice it would be a vocabulary course, right? Complementarian, easy to understand, right? Complementarians believe that men and women are complements to each other. So men and women have different but complementary roles. So they're not designed to do the same stuff, right? And there are physical differences, obviously. And there are also those physical difference, differences reverberate, and we should expect to see those differences echoed in roles that are played, right? That, that's the complementarian view. The egalitarian view, the egalitarian, they are for equality, right? It comes from a French word, just means equal, which means men and women um, are both in God's image, just like complementarians would say, but gender does not determine role, right? Gender does not determine responsibility. Two, two different positions, good, solid Christians on both. There are also non-Christians that hold both views, all right? Um, and so your, your Christianity, that box isn't checked um, by which view you hold. You can be non-Christian or Christian, hold both of those views or any of them. Now, I want you to understand going in, there aren't just two views, though. There's like a giant continuum with, you know, maybe not an infinite, but there are all kinds of positions along the continuum. As many people as there are, everybody's going to have a nuance to this, right? And if you know anything about education, you know, if you're going to write a PhD dissertation, you have to carve out a little niche where you're saying something different that's never been said before. Well, there's enough views on this that it's, never, it's almost never been said before. Well, they've all been said before. All right, so that's how it goes, a continuum. Now, let, let me walk you through what the views are, and I'm not here to convince you. Here's what both views affirm, right? You see that? Both views affirm these things. Here's what they say. Men and women have equal value, and they're both made in the image of God. So contrary to what some egalitarians would say about complementarians, they would say, yeah, but you know what? Those complementarians, they just don't believe women are made in the image of God and they're equal to it. That, nobody says that. I mean, if you can't say that and be you know, biblically literate. They both believe in equal value. They both believe that they're in the image of God. Both positions, or all positions on the continuum, have biblical support. And all positions have biblical problems, right? There are some question marks, there are some lacks, and there are some support. Both views, all views have that, right? So they've got verses that they're going to kind of load their guns with, and there are verses that they want to push aside that they're not going to know what to do with. Uh, I'm sorry, we didn't finish that. Um, good theology follows the scripture, 
seeks the input of, of the Christian church and understands the culture which we find ourselves. Now, theology always does that. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say, well, you know, theology, that just means we go to the Bible, we put together all that it says, and then we're done. We never have to do it again. That's not what theology is. Theology is wrestling with what the Bible says and what it says to our culture. Like, what's the, and so theology is never done. You got to, as soon as there's a change, we've got to do, the questions being raised and wrestled with in our culture today have never been wrestled, wrestled with before. So theology is not done. We need to keep doing theology. What does the Bible say about LGBTQ? What's it say? Well, you, you can never stop doing theology. Godly Bible-believing Christ followers support every position on the continuum. A church must follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit and take a position with humility and grace. They're just like politics. Those two attributes usually do not come into these conversations often. We should hold our position with humility and grace. Right? The Bible's not, not absolutely, it's not clearly and regularly taught. Right? Justification kind of on both sides. We don't have time to look at all the details. Um, so here are the complementarian, what their positions are. And my guess is many of you, some of you are complementarians. Here's, here's what you would believe. Men and women are separate and mostly equal. Both in the image of God, both have equal value, but there are some things that aren't interchangeable. Men and women were created differently and for different purposes, and the purposes function in a complementary way. So men and women are different. They function in a... And, you know, a marriage that produces kids is a perfect example physically of how that complementarian view works out in the rest of life, complementarians would say. One of the results would be that only men should hold leadership positions over other men Usually women may hold positions that do not place them in authority over men. So men, it's not just compliment that you're comp Men hold leadership positions. Women can't hold leadership positions in a church over men. That's what a position says. Now, once you're outside the church, the Bible doesn't say anything about outside the church, right? So it says nothing about whether women can be CBO, CEO, doesn't say anything about whether women can be president. The Bible doesn't say anything about any of that. The prohibitions that you know, come up in the scripture that the complementarians speak to, that's only under the umbrella of church. So once you're outside church, the Bible doesn't really speak to that. And lastly, the patriarchal view of the family kind of has the father as head. So you notice, if the church, this is, this is true by the way, the church is often pictured in the Bible as a macrocosm of the family. And the family is a microcosm of the church. So your view of church will have its mirror image in family, if you're going to be consistent on both views, and your view of what happens in the family will have its mirror image in church. Church in the Bible is the macro, is a macrocosm of family. Family is a microcosm of church. And so that's why it lines up, and Paul talks about that pretty clearly. All right, so here are the egalitarian beliefs. And a lot of these are, we looked at the things in common. These aren't that different. Men and women are equal in everything. So not just... Equal, you know, in worth and not, not just equal in God's image. No, equal in everything. There's no distinction between men and women when it comes to authority. They have equal responsibility and authority to use their God-given gifts in the church and in the world. Gender, the egalitarians say, gender is not and should not be a disqualification from any role. Gifting and grace of God determines role, not gender. That's the egalitarian position. The complementarians would say, yeah, giftedness and grace determine role and gender also factors into that. That's what the Bible says. We'll briefly look at some of the verses. Now, we don't have time to read all these. Um, 
it, it'll be in the, on the slides if you want to check it out. Um, the big verse for complementarians is 1 Timothy 2, 11. So let me just read that. You can't be a complementarian without recognizing, living out what 1 Timothy 2 says. So here's what it says. Begin reading in verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was the one who was deceived. It was then the woman who was deceived that became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and uh, propriety. So they're going to say, crystal clear, and I think we have to agree, 1 Timothy 2 Prohibit something. Paul's saying, don't do something. You know, there are some egalitarians that want to say, well, you know, Paul's prohibiting something. You may disagree on what it is, but he's prohibiting something. Um, the complementarians would say what Paul is prohibiting and what is not just in the context of Ephesus, but what is meant to be a principle to be lived out in the church forever is that women are to be quiet, submissive, and learn at home. Um, there, the egalitarians would say, yeah, but you know, if you're going to take that position, there are some inconsistencies then. For example, in um, 1 Corinthians, women are not just prophesying, they're encouraged to prophesy. So is that church that Paul wrote that letter to, are they living in disobedience to 1 Timothy 2? How about in... Um, in the Pentecost sermon, where um, Peter is speaking, right, and he quotes Joel, remember what he says? Men and women will prophesy. Okay, so was Joel wrong? And Peter shouldn't have quoted that? So all I'm saying is both, all views have support and all views lack support, all right? Now, I'll just give you the complementarian spiel, right? What they would say on First Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 2 is this. Paul is prohibiting something, and here's what he's prohibiting. You may remember from either your study of Acts or if you've studied 1 Timothy, um, Timothy was leading the church in Ephesus. Paul writes to Timothy, who's leading the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, if you remember from Acts, was it Acts 19 maybe? Ephesus was world famous back then for a temple, the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis. That's a female cult. All the leaders, all the priests in the temple were women. Men couldn't do it. So what Paul is at, well, this is what the Galaterians are going to say. Paul is not prohibiting women for all times forever. He's saying, you know what? In Ephesus, you guys have a real tendency that the church here is just going to reproduce the leadership structure, even if the women haven't learned. Wait, what's it say? Women are to learn, right? Right in these verses. Women, they're commanded to be disciples. They're commanded to learn. But learn, not in the big meeting. Don't be teachers until you learn. So one verse, kind of looking at two ways. See how it works? All right, well, you, you can check out the other ones. Titus is just where you give the um, qualifications of elder. The egalitarians. Egalitarians like Galatians 3.28. Now, 3.28 says, There is now 
No Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no slave or free. So here, here's how it works, and here's how the conviction thing works. Here's, the reason I want to do this, this is a perfect example of how convictions work, right? There's biblical support, there's biblical lack, and what do you do? You construct something, and just like we talked about when the meal gets delivered, you leave some ingredients in the bag. So either, if you're a complementarian, you read Galatians 3, and a whole lot of those other verses that talk about Deborah being a judge, she's like the epitome of a judge, Deborah being a judge, all these women leaders, women being disciples. Oh yeah, by the way, Jesus first appears at the res- after the resurrection only to women? Do you realize? If in, order to be a, if in order to be a member of the church, you have to receive the risen Lord, at that point, there were only women in the church. When Jesus appears, and the women become, the women are the apostles to the apostles. They run to the apostles to tell them Jesus is raised. They don't believe her. They don't believe the women. They run to the tomb. So either you're going to read all those verses through 1 Timothy 2. And so you're going to say, yeah, we don't know what's going on there, but boy, this 1 Timothy 2, 2 stuff's really clear. Now, if you're an egalitarian, you're going to read 1 Timothy 2 and all the prohibitions. You're going to read them through Galatians 3. And you're going to say, well, there are no more women and men. So yeah, I don't know what all that means. What are you doing? You're taking some of the data, pushing it aside, not sure what to do with. Um, You're taking other data and you're making it primary. So all I'm saying, that's a good example of how convictions work. Absolute convictions preference. So here's uh, Calvary's position. And this position comes basically how I said that we need to do theology, and we, as an elder board, we, we went through these slides or something like it. Um, here's what we've done. Taking into account what the Bible says, what's clear and what's not clear. Taking into account Christian history, where through the ages, through the centuries, it has been you know, a pretty male-dominated, patriarchal, complementarian deal. The history of Calvary Church has been pretty complementary, complementary, not very egalitarian, taking that into account. But, I'm not sure if you realize this, probably the number one question that comes up in new members class, how come women can't do anything here? That's not true, but that's how it gets phrased, right? How come that, like, women can't be elders? How come we, so here's how it works at Calvary Church. Taking all that into account, and here's where we are today, right? Both women and men, are encouraged and free to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, to learn all that they can, to be faithful followers of his, and to exercise their gifts in every and any way they find faithful expression and good stewardship within the confines of Calvary Church. Every position, every volunteer position, staff position, um, is open to men and women, except for two. Senior leadership team and ruling elders. We're kind of adopting the uh, Presbyterian language, right? Presbyterians have ruling elders and teaching elders, and they together make the session. So we want to say a senior leadership team um, and, right, and some leadership, the voting, this has changed in a new constitution, which was just approved. The chairman, or whatever you want to call him, the leader of the senior leadership team cannot be a woman, and board elders cannot be women. But the way we've designed it, because we need to hear from women, right? Most churches, I'm not sure if you know this, most churches have more women than men. 
right? I'm like, we're talking 55%. Men, most have more, more women. Um, we need to hear from women. Women need to feel valued. We need to kind of empower them, encourage them. So we have different um, kind of sub-teams on the board. Uh, so we've got, you know, the board, but then we've got the leadership development team on the board. Corey kind of runs that. Leadership development team. We have women on the leadership development team because we need to hear those voices. So they're not technically elders, but they're on the leadership development team. We have the financial management team. That team oversees the finances, right? And kind of does check and balance, pressure, test what we're doing. They have women on the financial management team. So we do whatever we can to have women engage in putting voices in. Uh, but as of right now, that's the position of Calvary Church. And we don't say, boy, well, if you have, if you have a women preacher, if you have women elders, well, you're not faithful to the Bible. We, well, I would never say that. I'd say, I sure hope you're following Jesus faithfully. Live out that conviction. You'll be in dialogue. We want to be in dialogue and debate with people that think differently about convictions. Look, we have to make some decisions, right? I've said this earlier. We can't punt on everything. Like, we can't just say, well, you know what? We went through this, and we want to be both. You can't be both, right? I mean, who's going to do what? Who's allowed to do what? You have to make some decisions. And so based on Christian history, based on what the scripture says, our history, dialogue with leaders, all that stuff, we've come to our position. And, you know, we have differences of opinion, exactly where you fall in the continuum, on staff, probably board members, many of you sitting here. Um, we, we fly to Jesus' flag at the top of the pole. You know what? We can have differences in convictions, and let's encourage each other, let's debate each other on some of the convictions, and let's sacrifice preferences for each other. And you know what? There's enough work to be done we don't have to debate who can sit in what seat and who gets called what. What do you say we just kind of put our shoulders to the plow and say, you know what, whatever God wants me to do, and he's given me energy, he's given me gifts, he's given me grace to do it, let's just go do it and not get hung up on title. Easy for me to say that, right? Well, if you want, let's stand and let me pray. And thank you all for coming. Thanks for your questions. And, you know, please, if you have other questions, send me an email. Uh, don't ask for another 10 weeks, at least before summer, but <laughs> all right, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for uh, the faithfulness of the people that have trekked with us, for the people that have faithfully watched online. Lord, thanks for their willingness to uh, want to wrestle with things that maybe are going to challenge and uh, push them a little bit to think through some things and categories and language that they haven't thought through and wrestled with before. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, live out the realities of the gospel, not retreating into our little rabbit hole and echo chamber of only dealing with people who believe and follow the script exactly as we do. Lord, help us to love people, to serve people, to be used by you to build relationships with people that don't know you yet. And then with people that do know you, to have our connections and to have our relationship grid continually to expand so you can have your way with us, challenging us, encouraging us, pushing us to grow, to become stronger to become wiser as we, as we interact with your people, with non-Christians, with non but we do it in ways guided by your spirit, energized by the things he does as we seek to faithfully live out the principles of the gospel. Lord, thanks for all that you've given us. Help us to live gratefully in response. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.